This morning, before everything else, I'd like to express the wish that you will be more and more able to make use of this world of 5 a.m. so that you will be better able to walk in anatta, not self, or in sunyata, voidness, so that you're more naturally able to walk without a walker. If we can walk without a walker, then it will be quite easy to do the same in other postures and motions as well. If we can walk with not-self, then it'll be much easier to do it in other times and places. If you have the mindfulness which recollects not-self in every motion and activity, then your life will become a lesson in every, every moment. Life is a process of learning, a constant process of learning. And life is testing us, examining us all the time. And then the results of these examinations are also happening constantly. So life is a process of learning. Life is the lesson in all aspects, both the learning, the testing, and getting your test results back. In Buddhism, we have certain words which are very useful. One of these is the phrase, to be always awake, to be constantly awake. This means that there is mindfulness, sati, all the time. And so this keeps us, which means that we we don't make mistakes, that through constant mindfulness there is nothing, we, life is always correct, both while awake and even while asleep. If we have mindfulness throughout the waking hours, then even while asleep we maintain the correctness. While walking, if we are without this mindfulness, especially mindfulness of not-self, then it's like we're asleep even while we walk. So we need to learn how to be awake all the time through this mindfulness of not-self. And so we will continue to stress repeat and encourage you to walk with this mindfulness of not-self, mindfulness of voidness being 
void of self. This is the highest level of practice which brings the highest benefits. We encourage you to to try this to the best of your ability. Now we'll we'll discuss the matter which is left over from yesterday. We began to talk about it and today we will discuss further the light of Dhamma. You've come here searching for Dhamma and in that very Dhamma itself there is the light of Dhamma. If you find or discover Dhamma then you will automatically have the light of Dhamma which will show you the way of living life. Light of Dhamma means simply the law of nature, the law of Jayata conditionality, the law of dependent origination or Paticca Samupada. When we have this light of Dhamma, then it will show us the path of life and then we will be able to walk that path correctly until reaching the final goal or the ultimate purpose of life. And if we see this or receive this light of Dhamma, there is a special bonus. One will also meet the Buddha. The Buddha himself said that whoever sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. And then whoever sees the Dhamma sees me, sees the Buddha. So when we, when we discover and realize this law of dependent origination, of conditionality, then we also meet the Buddha. These words may seem somewhat amusing or funny, but it's the fact that when we see the way that all things arise or appear in this world and then the way they quench or cease, then we see the Buddha in the arising and passing away of things. We find the Buddha. This may sound a little funny or strange, but that's the way it is. Therefore, let's study and investigate this matter of Itapajayata conditionality and Paticca Samupada dependent origination to the best of our ability. First, we'll look at Itapajayata. In fact, Itapajayata and Paticca Samupada are the same matter, the same truth or law. <clears throat> but when we speak in general terms, 
in universal terms regarding all of nature. We, we call it conditionality or itapajayata. But when we speak specifically of the arising and quenching of dukkha and of sukha, well-being or happiness, then we call it dependent origination or paticca samupata. Itapajayata applies to everything. It's a universal principle. It applies to all the things that modern science re refers to as matter and energy in these two categories. Or what in Dhamma terms is usually spoke of, spoken of as being body and mind. All aspects of these are covered by Itapajayata, the law of conditionality. The fact that all things have their conditions, that all things depend on, are, on other things, are conditions. And then the conditions of this one thing in turn have their conditions. And those are further supported by their own conditions. So all things arise, exist, pass away, dependent on their conditions. This is the law of Ikapajayata. And it's not like things are just sitting there on top of their conditions or that this is some static state. But things not only have conditions, but they, <clears throat> they happen according to conditions. Things change according to the conditions. This is a totally absolute law that all things happen, occur, transform according to conditions. This law is universal. It covers the entire universe, meaning that it, it runs the whole show down to even the smallest atoms and even the subatomic particles, that all of these things have their conditions and happen according to those conditions. This applies to everything from the, the rocks, to plants, to animals, and even including human beings. Now when, this, when everything in the universe is subject to this law, there arises a dilemma for sentient beings. Conscious beings then are confronted with the dilemma of having to act in harmony with this law. Now when sentient beings act or behave out of line with the law of conditionality, 
then there is dukkha. There is um, a lack of well-being. There is pain. There is suffering. When this happens, this this activity of the arising of dukkha is called specifically paticca samupada or dependent origination. So within the universal law of conditionality, there arises the, the particular arising of suffering or dukkha is called dependent origination. To put it briefly, when applied to sentient beings, beings that feel and experience, then we call it dependent origination. When it applies to everything, even inanimate things that don't feel or experience, then it's called itapajayata, or conditionality. When we use the word universal or cosmic, we mean everything. We even dare to say that if there is such a place as heaven, then heaven is under the power of this universal law. And that even hell, if there is such a place, exists under the power of this this law. We are, or we have bodies and minds, and these bodies and minds fall under this principle. If we think of our fellow human beings, all human beings fall under this principle. Our children, our wives, our husbands, all our loved ones fall under this principle. And all the things in our lives, all the things associated with us, our possessions, our homes, our fame, our honor, all of these fall under this principle of conditionality. When we look at life on the physical side, we see that this law or principle runs, controls every every atom, every subatomic particle in our bodies. When we look on the mental side, we see that this principle dominates or runs every moment of consciousness or what we call mind moment. So on one side the principle covers every atom of our physical existence. On the other it covers every mental moment. Now let's take a look at what's happening with sentient beings, how this principle applies to sentient beings. Sentient beings or 
human beings in particular have bodies and the bodies include a nervous system the nervous system also includes the brain don't don't think that the nervous system is mine or that the brain is mine but our nervous system is part of the body and then there's a mental system a system of consciousness which um responds to which receives the inputs from the nervous system and this we call mind this is what the sentient being is the body and the mind however we want to be very careful about this word and because we don't want to imply that they're two separate things if we say body and mind it becomes a duality but in fact it's just one thing we prefer the term mind body mind body without any and because it's singular or in the pali language we call it nama rupa many people think these are two things which is confusing in fact it's just one whole mind body why don't we separate them because they can't be separated if you separate mind from body or body from mind then it all dies there's just no way of of separating them they always go together this mind body and so we speak of it as one thing not two now mind body or we can distinguish in mind body six pairs or aspects of mind body there are the six inner sense senses the eyes ears nose tongue body and mind sense and then outwardly there are the six kinds of things that stimulate the senses forms sounds odors flavors touches and mental objects so there are six within and six outside forming six pairs the the sense organs inside in the sense organs outside and then these pairs come together the eyes and forms the ears and sounds and so on they interact these six pairs are very important because this is where everything in life happens this is the starting point or the abc's of life and of buddhism to understand buddhism we need to study these six pairs of the senses or the ayatana ayatana this is because everything else happens based on 
the eyes and forms, the ears and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and taste, the body and touches, and the mind, sense, and mental objects. So we, everything else, consciousness, feeling, and the rest of our mental experience depends on the senses. So we need to study it very carefully. We need to examine it as closely as we can. This word ayatana is a bit difficult. <clears throat> so in Thai, it's not even translated. Thai just takes and uses the Pali word. And then to translate it into English is equally troublesome. The word I, so we prefer just to use the original Pali term, ayatana. Ayatana, ayatana means things which communicate or things which are able to communicate. So anything which communicates is called an ayatana. But here we're interested most particularly in the communicators and the communication that is the basis of all sentient experience, meaning the, the six things inside, the eyes and so on, the six things outside, the forms, sounds and so on. Together they form six pairs of communicators which is the basis for all of our life. Without this, there is no life. We need to understand the eyes as well as we can. We need to know the ears as best we can. We must understand the nose as thoroughly as possible. We must know the tongue as best we can. We must know the body thoroughly. And we must know the mind which in the center receives the, the data from all the other senses. We must know this as well as possible, as closely and carefully as possible. To understand Dhamma, we have to know and understand these six ayatana. They're the starting point for everything. They're the basis of everything. And so we must observe them very carefully, study and experience them as thoroughly as possible. These, these six things are very difficult to control. <clears throat> In them, there are six mechanisms. In, these, in each of the ayatana, there is a mechanism. And these mechanisms are very difficult to control. They're even more difficult to control than things like computers. 
you may think a computer is very complicated and difficult to deal with, but these senses are even more subtle and hard to control. Because of this, we don't control them because we don't understand them. And because we don't understand them, they deceive us. These subtle mechanisms will trick us because we don't understand them. Because of this trickery, then, we need to study the six ayatanas until we know them well enough to control them. When we understand these mechanisms deeply enough so they no longer trick us, then, then we'll have them under control and there won't be any problem. Generally, we know these senses rather superficially. We don't see deeply into how they function. We have the eyes in order to experience light waves, but we don't understand this very well. We have ears which receive sound waves, but this we don't look very carefully at this. The nose is just the part of the nervous system that, that measures the quantity of certain volatile gases. The, the tongue is just another part of the nervous system, the one for picking up flavors. The skin and the body senses, touches, physical sensations. All of this is happening on a rather superficial level and we don't, we don't see deeply how it works. And especially with the mind sense. The mind is even more subtle and more hard to, to fathom. And so these things happen, but we don't quite know what's going on. And so the senses are able to trick us. They're outside of our control. So let's investigate the function of these senses a little more deeply. We'll start using the eye as an example. First, the eye, the eye is stimulated by a form. This means by light waves. The first level of this interaction is then knowing the kind of shape or the characteristics of the form, knowing its dimensions, knowing the color. For example, just knowing the shape of it, the colors, the dimensions. The second level of interaction is when the eye knows the meaning 
of that form, of that shape. For example, it can, it recognizes a human being or even goes so far of knowing this is a man, this is a woman. This is where the, there is the first level of interaction or contact is with the, just the physical characteristics. The second level is with the meaning of the object that is seen. Usually this is, this is all the interaction or contact there is. But in fact, there's a third level when the eye knows that what's taking place is merely conditionality. This is just things originating, arising dependent on other things. When the mind or when the eye sees the conditionality of the form of the seeing, this is to know the object on the third level, the level of truth. So there are three, the eye knows the object on three levels. The first level is just the physical level of its shape and color. The second level is the level of meaning. Its meaning as being male, female, or whatever. But the third level is to know it in terms of truth, to know the truth of it. If we see that the object is merely itapajayada, if the eye can see this, then it will see not self. It will see that the, the form is not self. So there are these three levels of knowing, the level of the physical level, the level of meaning, and the level of truth. So now we will study specifically dependent origination, what it is and how it happens. So we can ask first of all where dependent origination happens. It happens on the senses, based in the senses. It arises at the senses. Then we can ask when dependent origination it happen, happens. It happens whenever an external sense object stimulates the nervous system. When some object stimulates one of the sense organs, that's when dependent origination occurs. Last, we can ask how it happens. It happens through this interaction of sense organ and sense object. Then they interact and, and this is dependent on various conditions. And then with this interaction of, say, eye and form or ear and sound, then this further conditions other certain reactions. 
and then a series of reactions takes place. This is how dependent origination occurs. It happens at the sense organs when a sense object stimulates the sense organ through this and through this interaction a series of reactions are conditioned or concocted. Now at first it sounds like this is rather trivial that we're making a big deal out of something very ordinary and not very important. But in fact this is incredibly important. If we don't understand this interaction of the senses, then we have no way of understanding life. So it may seem to be a little bit trivial or simplistic, but it's of crucial importance. We need to pay careful attention to this. Otherwise, otherwise life will keep on slipping between our fingers. So now we'll start to study this dependent origination to see how it streams, how it, how its flow occurs. First of all, when the sense organ and sense object arise or interact, then there arises consciousness the bare knowing of the sense experience. This is called vijnana, vijnana, or consciousness. So when the eye is stimulated by a form, then there arises eye consciousness, the very basic primitive knowing or of the experience, or what we usually call seeing. Now, you'll see from observing this that consciousness doesn't exist constantly. Instead, consciousness arises or happens only when the sense organs are stimulated. However, other religions will explain that consciousness is some kind of permanent, eternal thing. That consciousness is like the ground of being or something, and it exists consistently. And of course, other religions are welcome to their, their own views. But in Buddhism, we observe that consciousness only arises when the eye is stimulated by a form or the ear by a sound, and so on. It doesn't exist in time, or it, it doesn't exist, it doesn't persist in time. It just arises and passes away according to the stimulation of the ayatana. So when the eye is stimulated and consciousness arises, this very activity is called dependent origination. The I originates dependent on conditions. Consciousness originates, appears, dependent on conditions. 
So right here we have the, the reality of dependent origination. It happens the same with the other senses, the dependent origination of the ear and ear consciousness, the nose and nose consciousness, and so forth. Now these three things then come together. There's the eye, the form, and eye consciousness, and then the three come together. When the eye sees the object through consciousness, the eye sees the, con the, the form with consciousness. And then when they're all three together, we call that patsa or contact. Where the, now the object or the experience makes full contact with the mind. The same happens with the other senses. When the, the sense organ, the sense object, and sense consciousness work together, that is called contact. Some people speak rather sloppily and say that contact is when the eye contacts a form or the ear contacts a sound. But that's not actually true. There can only be contact when there is consciousness because the eye only sees the object through eye consciousness. The ear only hears the sound through ear consciousness. And so for there to truly be contact, there must be consciousness. It takes all three working together for there to be contact for there to be sense experience. Just think for a minute how many of these contacts there are each day. Think about how much there is contact throughout the day. Take something like going to a movie. You go to a movie and the eye sees the things on the screen. So there's eye contact. But of course there is the, the soundtrack. And so one is hearing all these sounds and there is ear contact. And then in the theaters there is various smells like maybe the perfume of the person you're with or your own or cologne or who knows what. And then there's nose contact. And then maybe one's eating candy or popcorn or something while watching the movie. And so there is tongue contact. And then one sits and is comfortable in one's chair. And there is body contact. And finally one thinks all kinds of confused thoughts. There's a bunch of thoughts and emotions coming up as we watch the movie. <coughs> And so just in watching a movie, there are all six kinds of consciousness, or of contact. This will help you to understand how consciousness or, and contact are happening throughout the day, over and over and over again. 
in our Dhamma way of speaking, there's a somewhat more frightening or powerful way to describe this. It's called being slapped in the face over and over again. This, all this sense contact is being like, is like being slapped left and right all day long, all year long, for one's entire life. Every time something, a form stimulates the eyes or a sound stimulates the ears, it's like our faces slap. But nobody sees it this way. Everybody sees all this sense experience as being pleasant, as being enjoyable and fun. We see something, it's enjoyable. We hear something, it's fun. Nobody sees it like being slapped over and over again. Nobody sees the senses, the, the seeing, the smelling, as being burdensome. That as soon as we see something, a reaction is set off. Gets into all kinds of thinking and all kinds of trouble. Every time we hear, we smell. Nobody sees that it gets heavy. It gets tense. It gets busy. Nobody sees this. And so, instead of seeing the sense contact as being a slap in the face, we think they're fun very pleasant and enjoyable. Now please don't think that this is a pessimistic way of understanding the world. Because in fact what we're saying is not pessimistic, it's merely true. This is just the way the senses are. Now, some of us, because we're still quite attached to the idea that, this, that the senses are all wonderful, fun, and beautiful, then react to this kind of description as being pessimistic. But in fact, it's just neutral and truthful. Because we are still seeking pleasure, because we're still being tricked by the senses, because we don't understand them. This may sound pessimistic to us, but in fact this is just what's happening. We don't understand them and so the sense activity, the contact, trick us. They lead us astray. And every time we're led astray, because we don't know what we're doing, there is dukkha. There is some conflict, some trouble in the heart. There's nothing pessimistic of about looking at things this way. It's just the way things are. Now once there is contact, there arises feeling or vetana. Vetana is a positive or negative or neither positive nor negative feeling towards the contact. Once a contact is experienced, 
the mind feels it one way or the other, either positive, negative, or a kind of indiscriminate feeling that's neither positive nor negative. Now, we usually give a lot of importance to this feeling. We take it very seriously. We don't recognize that we just make it up ourselves. That we're just reacting to things, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, sometimes neither positive nor negative. It's just dependent origination. It's just these things arising out of causes and conditions. But we don't see it that way, and so we, we consider it to be really positive or really negative or really neutral. Although, say, take one flavor, one person might experience a flavor as being positive, and another person might experience the same exact flavor as being negative, and a third as being neither positive nor negative. So, notice that it's not the positive and negative isn't in the flavor, it's in how we react to it. This is dependent origination of Vedana. Now notice that this, this positiveness and negativeness is merely our own ignorance. That in nature or naturally all this happening is the senses are being conditioned and then the sense experience is conditioned. That's all that happens naturally. It's our own ignorance that sticks the positiveness or the negativeness into the experience. Things just, there's just this natural conditioning of experience. But it's our own ignorant response that puts, puts in the positive in the negative, it's important to realize where the positive and the negative are coming from. <clears throat> now this feeling or vetana causes danha. Danha means foolish desire. Once, once something is felt, there is some kind of wanting or desiring. This is called danha, which is always foolish or blind. You can call it desire, you can call it craving. But it's important to see that this is a blind reaction. It's an ignorant reaction to feeling. If the feeling is positive, the mind blindly wants it, wants to get it, to have it, to keep it. If the feeling is negative, the mind wants to get rid of, to destroy, to annihilate. If the feeling is neither positive or negative, the mind gets confused, it's uncertain. It doesn't get any smarter, it's just as stupid as ever. So there's, due to feeling there, there is desire or craving, which is ignorant. This is not aspiration. It's very different from a, a wise aspiration regarding 
experience. That's another thing, but feeling here is, is conditioning ignorance, desire, or craving. The Pali word here is tanha, tanha, and it's very important to understand that this always means foolish or ignorant want. The word tanha always means stupidity. There's, there's, has nothing to do with wisdom. Whenever there's the positive feeling, then there is the blind or ignorant desire in a positive way, which we can, we can call greed, or if it expresses itself sexually, we call it lust. If the feeling is negative, then this kind of ignorant desire comes out as hatred or can be anger. And if the feeling is neither positive nor negative, it comes out as delusion, as confusion, which can take many forms. So always the danha means ignorant desire. Now, if on the other hand, if in the experience, if there is wisdom, if there is a correct, genuine intelligence that knows things as they really are, we would never call that danha or desire. We prefer to call it aspiration. It's a wise and proper aspiration regarding things, which is another matter than danha or desire. Now, this desire tricks the mind into thinking that there is someone who desires. Desire tricks the mind into conceptualizing a me. I desire, the me who, who wants. This is called upadana or attachment. Upadana, attachment is this concept of me. It's not just desire anymore. There's the me who desires, who owns the desire. Whether it's positive or negative desire, there's a me, a positive or negative me that desires. This is called attachment or clinging. In Pali, it's called upadana. Once there is this attachment, from attachment there arises the, the idea we call bhava, bhava, or existence. Once there is the attachment to desire as me, there's the concept of me, then there arises the concept or idea that there is some me that exists. First, there's just the concept of me. We call that attachment. Then there is the concept, me exists, I exist. This is called bhava, the existence of me. Now, this is, me doesn't really exist. There's not any 
self here that is truly me. But there's concept, this elusive, illusion, airy concept of me existing arises. And that illusion is called bhava, existence. Now, existence leads to birth. The attachment is like conception, physical conception when the sperm fertilizes the egg in human reproduction, or we call that conception. And then once the, the fetus is conceived, it grows, it develops, this, which is similar to bhava or existence. And then eventually the fetus is mature and it is born. And in the same way there is a mental birth of the ego, of the, the concept of self, the ego. So first there's the concept of me, and then this grows into the a me that, the idea that me really exists. And when that is full grown, there is a mental or spiritual birth of ego. Now this ego is pure illusion. This thought of ego, this self-centered state of mind is pure illusion. It's, it's pure stupidity. But because we don't understand this whole process of dependent origination, we take it to be real. We're thoroughly, de thoroughly deceived by this kind of thinking, by this illusion of ego. And so we take it to be real and we act upon it. We do all kinds of selfish things. But if you've been following how there's from sense contact on through attachment, the existing of me and then the birth of ego. If you've been following that, you'll see that it's just thoughts popping into the mind that don't, and there's no reality beyond those thoughts. It's all just illusion in the mind, all this ego. The, this, when the ego is full-blown, full-grown in the mind, that is called birth, or in Pali, chati, chati. Notice it's birth, not rebirth, just birth. Now when we speak of birth, it's important to recognize that there are two kinds of birth. We're, we're talking about two different kinds of birth. The ordinary meaning of birth is physical birth. Each of us has been born physically from our mother's womb. Now that just happened once in a lifetime. And it's, it's not any problem for us. It happens. And there's no problem with it. But there's another kind of birth that's happening over and over again, many times each day. This isn't a physical birth, but a mental birth or a spiritual birth. 
this birth of ego in the mind, when the illusion of ego appears in the mind, that's a mental or spiritual birth. And this is where all our problems lie. Having been born physically is not in itself a problem, it's just a natural process. It happens. It's this mental birth, this birth of the ego that makes a mess out of everything. This is where the problems arise. And notice that this mental birth happens repeatedly in, in our, each day. It's happening over and over again. And each time it occurs, it creates trouble. So see the, the two kinds of births. There's physical birth and there's mental birth. And then we come to the last symptom or manifestation of dependent origination. That ego birth causes dukkha. Because ego is born, there will appear all the forms of dukkha all kinds of pain, sorrow, suffering, despair, discomfort, and all of that exists solely because of ego. So the birth of ego then is the condition and cause for all the forms of dukkha. As soon as ego is born, it's heavy. As soon as it's born, it becomes something heavy for the mind. Ego is always a burden, a weight on the mind. So it's responsible for all the forms of dukkha. This ego is the burden of life. Life itself is not a burden. It's the ego that is the burden. All the heaviness is merely happening because of ego. This ego is the way that life gets stuck in the, the aggregates of existence. There are the different aggregates or khandas of our existence. And when it's by ego that we get stuck in these, which means life is turned into a prison. Ego makes life a prison. Through this birth of ego, we, we make, we get trapped or imprisoned in ego. So we can say ego is the prison of life, where life is trapped, locked up, limited, cramped, tormented within this dungeon of ego. A further thing to observe is that once the concept of me is born, it's ordinarily followed by mine. Once consciousness is centered on this me, ego thing, then it turns everything else into mine. Once we're looking at things in terms of me, 
then whatever whatever happens or whatever we gets involved with us, whatever whatever comes by, is seen to be mine. Whether it's positive or negative, friend or foe, wife, husband, children, home, fame, money, the weather, it all becomes mine. So from the me, from the ego, which is suffering, then dukkha spreads throughout the universe, through the the mind. Everything that is grabbed onto as mind also becomes heavy, also becomes a problem. Now, dukkha comes in two forms. The first form is very basic and ordinary. It's when there's physical pain, aches, illness, discomfort, all of this kind of thing is the condition or symptoms of dukkha. They're just these painful conditions that are experienced. That's one form of dukkha, painful conditions. The second is dukkha through meaning. The first is dukkha through conditions, but now there is also dukkha through meaning. When we attach to the meaning of things, such as birth, illness, aging, old age, and death, most of all death, we're really afraid of death, although it's just the meaning we give to things. Death hasn't come yet, but we're afraid of, of death, we're afraid of having nuclear bombs dropped on us, we're afraid of terrorists, we're afraid of this and that. This is the dukkha that comes through meaning. We attach the meanings of illness, of aging, of death, things and so there's and this hasn't happened these things actually haven't happened we just but by attaching this meaning to things there is dukkha for the mind there is a burden on the mind so there's these two forms of dukkha painful conditions and then the dukkha of meaning or we give a value to things and this is dukkha. Finally, what's rather amusing is that the painful conditions, that form of dukkha doesn't happen that often, especially death. Death only happens once in a lifetime. It's just, it doesn't happen so much. But the dukkha through meaning happens over and over again. It happens all the time. Although we may be quite healthy, we're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of being hurt, of being beat up or whatever. And so the painful conditions of life don't happen so often. But the, the mental condition through this clinging to meaning, this happens all the time. 
This is rather, rather funny. So this is the principle of dependent origination as it is taught in Buddhism. This is this, the fundamental fact of life, of how these different con conditions arise or originate dependent on other conditions, especially how the condition of dukkha originates dependent on these various things. So please try to understand this thoroughly. Please try to understand what has been explained and try to remember it. Because once you leave here, you may go other places and hear dependent origination explained in other ways. In the West, in Sri Lanka, in Burma, in Tibet, in Japan, this is often explained in, a different, in different ways, many different ways. And so we don't want you to be surprised or confused when you hear other people explaining dependent origination differently. So we hope that you understand the way it's being explained here because we're confident that this way of understanding dependent origination can genuinely benefit you. And so we hope that you understand it and then later if you hear other explanations it won't be confusing for you. So please do your best to understand this entire process of dependent origination. There's one more little thing to mention. It concerns the vagaries and ambiguity of language. We have this term dependent origination and we've been describing how things originate dependent on conditions, that all things happen dependent on conditions. But we also use the very same term, Paticca Samupada, for the quenching of dukkha. Dukkha arises in the way we've described this morning. But there's also the quenching or cessation of dukkha. Dukkha doesn't last forever, it, it quenches. And the quenching of dukkha is also called dependent origination. So it's the dependent origination of the quenching or cessation of dukkha. So there's the dependent origination of dukkha arising and the dependent origination of dukkha quenching. We want to make this point clear so that you, you don't wonder, well, what about the ending of dukkha? Where does that fit in? The ending or cessation of dukkha is also part of or is also covered by this principle of dependent origination. Another thing to understand is that the word dependent origination doesn't apply just to the entire string, beginning with the senses and going boom, boom, boom up to dukkha. Often dependent origination is talked about of, in terms of the entire string 
or stream, and there are longer and shorter versions of it. But the term dependent origination also applies just to each pair of this leading to the dependent origination of this. For example, when the inner ayatana and the outer ayatana meet, then consciousness is conditioned. Even just that one one aspect is called, or that one activity of conditioning is called dependent origination. You don't have to, it doesn't mean just the whole string. It also means each little pair of, of this leading to that. <clears throat> One more point is that this whole thing of dependent origination needs to be controlled or governed so that it doesn't turn into dukkha. Or it even can be controlled to the point where it doesn't happen. Now to either of these, either to control it so it doesn't become dukkha or to not even let it happen, requires something very important. The dhamma which we call mindfulness, sati. This mindfulness is necessary in order to regulate or even stop the flow of dependent origination. Now to, and so it's necessary to speak about the training and development of mindfulness. So we need to look into and understand how to train mindfulness in the most complete and systematic way. And this involves what is called mindfulness with breathing, which you're studying over at the meditation center. Now we want to explain this in adequate deal, detail because it's mindfulness with breathing is just as refined and subtle as dependent origination. And so we'll discuss it on a later date. But it's important to recognize the importance of mindfulness in controlling dependent origination. And then seeing the necessity of training mindfulness thoroughly. And last of all, I'd like to thank you once more for being good listeners. And not only that, you had to sit through a little bit of rain. The rain's only a difficulty in this month. Next month, there won't be any more rain. But you've shown quite a lot of patience with the long talk and with the rain. So in turn, we, we hope and we wish you progress in your practice, progress in understanding dependent origination, progress in understanding <clears throat> and practicing mindfulness with breathing and progress in walking with the mindfulness of not-self, walking mindful of voidness of self. We wish you continued and unhindered progress.
both day, all day, and all night. And this is the end of today's talk. <laughs>